1: already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits.
2: Hey, BTB buddies. Before we get started here, I want to relay an experience I had with my car. As you know, I live in Huntsville, Alabama now. And I know a lot of folks from Huntsville listen to the podcast because my stats tell me so. Long story short, my car needed an engine. And I took it to a gentleman who said he could do it. Turns out he couldn't do it. So I had to take it to somebody else. I found Christian Brothers Automotive after looking around all over the place for somebody who could actually replace an engine. Boy, did they take good care of me. They communicated during the whole process. They worked with my extended warranty company which is not a bad company, but there's a lot of red tape involved. And I know that took some time on the phone for them. They had my car's a Ford, and they had a uh, Ford master mechanic do the work and also found out I needed uh, back brakes. They took care of that. I just want to say I drove out with a car that felt like a new car. Jeff Cole, who's the owner there, took some time to talk to me to make sure that I was taken care of all right, And I was taken care of all right. And the nice thing with this is I get a 36,000 mile or 36 month warranty, whichever comes last. So that means if I drive 36,000 miles this year, I still got two years left on my warranty. Or if I take five years to drive 36,000 miles, it's still under warranty. Pretty good deal. I've never seen that from a mechanic shop before. They took great care of me. If you live in Huntsville and you need your car repaired in any way, I highly recommend Christian Brothers Automotive in Hampton Cove, soon to have a location here in South Huntsville over by the boot. So keep your eye out for that. Christian Brothers Automotive, thank you for doing a great job. All right, BTB buddies, we've got Steven Weiner on the podcast today. Steven Weiner is a comedy writer that started out at National Lampoon and went on to be one of the first writers for Late Night with David Letterman. He went on to work with Robert Klein, Dick Van Dyke, and write for the new Mickey Mouse Club that came out in the 90s. Steven currently writes some great articles about classic comedy films for the Criterion Collection. Make sure you check out that link in the show notes. It was a great time talking to Steve about writing for different folks and different audiences, and it was really cool that he found Calvert DeForest, who is better known as Larry Bud Melman, before he was on Late Night. This is a really good episode. Give it a listen. Steven, how are you?
1: I'm fine, thank you. Let me give you a couple of quick corrections right off the bat. Okay. <laughs> uh, it was Showtime, not HBO, and it's Calvert DeForest, not Calvin DeForest. Otherwise, Very good. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I'll try not to be distracted by your enormous head.
2: Yeah. (laughs) There's one thing that seems to be a common theme over a lot of the folks who did writing, especially for Letterman, in that there ain't shit on the internet about you. Or anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I I did I did find a couple clips uh, yeah. where um you you were on the show. One of them was mm-hmm. um, stupid writer tricks. Um and yeah. and when I had laryngitis. Yeah. <laughs> and and you and Carl were basically just uh, sucking up to Dave. That was your whole trick. And then you did yeah, that was a joke. Yeah. yeah, you did get to do a little spot that uh, brought forth some of the clips from uh, King of. We Z- did a
1: couple of them. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if all the whole of them looked up, but but we did we did a bunch of them actually, and we made new, we got to make new clips for the sh- specifically for the show. I don't know, maybe we should go a little background on the film. I don't know what what order you want to do. Yeah, for I, I and, and that
2: because did that um kind of get you in the uh, front door to work with Dave.
1: Oh, it, def- it definitely did. Yeah, the story the story was I mean we had written for the a little bit for the National Lampoon, but that would have been some years before. Uh, we had made this. Short, we made this short film that it was originally my idea that I brought to Carl, who i had been working with for some years, for this parody documentary about the world's cheapest movie studio of the 40s and 50s, which is going to be called Vespucci. And the movie was called King of Disease, which uh, I don't like the term mockumentary. I always call it just called it parody documentaries. Uh, and so, of course, we had to make our our own contemporary interview footage and also make our own black and white film clips from the actual movies. We had worked. We've Calvert DeForest had actually come for an earlier film that Carl and I had made it uh, and uh, there really wasn't a part for him in it, but he, he stuck in both of our, back of both of our minds. And uh, certainly, you know, when we were thinking of well, what kind of, I was thinking what kind of actors you would have at a studio that couldn't afford to pay people, Calvert sort of leapt to the fore. In any case, we made the movie and it played in an early t- uh, Telluride festival, film festival, and uh, it got picked up for Showtime and it ran for two years on Showtime as an interstitial, uh, you know, between features. I actually never got to see it because in fact, in those days, Showtime was only in the upper, was the upper half of Manhattan and HBO was below 86th where I live. And so I never actually got to see it on the air. Uh, Stu Smiley, who worked for the Ross and Jaffe office in those days, did see it on the air and, and he liked it. He he contacted, he reached out and contacted me and he said, you know, I'd love to work with you guys. Is that something you're, that really appeals to you? I had been a big fan of Dave's morning show uh, and I knew that the show was coming up. I don't think, I don't think it had particularly crossed his mind to bring it directly to him because I brought it up. He said, I said, do you think there's any chance that maybe David, you know, would look at it and maybe consider us for the show is always oh, said, I didn't hadn't thought of that. Let me, let me bring it to them and see what happens. Turns out that David and Merrill did see the film and they liked it and they brought us in for an interview and eventually wound up and are getting the job.
2: That's that, that's a, that's a great story. And so I've read a lot about, the show and uh you you come up in uh some of the books and one of the things that seems to be a common theme on the letterman show is that the writing experience was unlike almost every other show and it was very insular um instead of uh collaborative um and it was almost like a nine to five job where you uh punched in wrote your jokes and uh punched out uh and that's a statement and the question is dave is a um always always has been um a a very private person and one of the things that's important when you write for somebody's voice is to understand their sensibilities and understand what they think is funny. My question is, is how are you able to write in a situation where the host is kind of standoffish and uh, doesn't necessarily, you don't necessarily know what he wants?
1: Well, I don't think that I think there are a couple of questions that in, let me break that into a couple of pieces. And if I forget one, come back to it um first of all you're never writing for a person for a comedian's private self Mm -hmm. you're writing for their public self the this the 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 way dave presented himself on the air is what you're writing for right so the i had already seen him on you know regularly on the morning show so i had a bit i got a sense of what the rhythm of his his style was Mm -hmm. uh and i think the rest of us all picked it up pretty quickly so it wasn't so much getting to know dave personally as it was once you get to know his his comedy persona his on-air personality that's what you write for. Mm. I, I I mean I haven't written with that for so that many distinctive comedians, but basically that's always the case. Uh, in Robert Klein's case, I think that the, the dis there's less distance between their public public and private persona, but still there is a rhythm to Robert's performance and you have to get that rhythm rather than this private conversation. So you're always speaking writing for a specific voice, and the voice is not the person, it's their persona. Mm. I think that that's the best way I can put it.
2: Now when you when you were writing did did the bits jokes everything that you put together did that go to meryl and then go to dave or how did that work
1: that's how it worked i mean basically there are several ways of 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 kind of bits that you would come up with some would be bits you generate yourself you present them to meryl see if she likes another would be what you know what you might call that we we call the refillables which is bits that come back on a regular basis Mm -hmm. whether it's you viewer mail or, or whack or the new products, which we called wacky in the office, the wacky pop bit and things like that. Uh, those are, those are always going to come back again and again. So in that case, we would all turn in pages, you know, 10 jokes or so from, for a particular bit, uh, if it was a pop thing or we'd have like 10 pop ideas, uh, viewer mail was a little different. You know, we'd be getting the mail, the, the idea, the ones that Meryl thought had promised. And she would give us those and a couple of days before, and we would write jokes to those that was us. Mm-hmm. and the, but then everybody was sent to return up. In in those cases, we would all be turning on in material for the same overall bits. Mm-hmm. In other words, everybody would turn in ideas for your mail. Everybody would turn in for new products, whatever. And then Merrill would pick the ones she liked best, and then she would take those to Dave, and Dave would pick the ones he liked best. Mm-hmm. And that's how it worked out. Cool. Dave really
2: liked words, and yeah. he he liked silly words. He liked. Uh you know, words that you don't hear every day. He, he liked that type of stuff. How did you key in and be able to use that to get some of your bits on, on the um, show?
1: I don't know so much keyed in. I, I always love verbal, that that kind of thing myself. Mm-hmm. I loved I, I love the way he used words and I love the kind of jokes that he did on his own. So that, the you know, the trick is to write in that voice and I can't, can't really explain a particular way you go about it. You just have to learn sort of, get that voice the the thing is i found that when i was working for any comedian with a strong voice whether it was dave or robert or whoever they would be so much in my head so present in my head that i would find myself talking their rhythms when i was not there yeah i'd be talking their rhythms to people i knew you know uh sometimes and that gets into trouble because i remember one time i was actually around dave when when and i wound up actually saying something in his kind of rhythm and i saw the look in his face I said okay I remember doing that again <laughs> on the other hand there's a story uh there's a robert klein story that i i and i think i told him mike's so i don't know if you want to hear it again but it's very indicative of how that works i you know when, when i was working in robert's case i had been a fan of his literally for at that point for since this you know he first started i saw his first carson appearance mm-hmm. well i've been a huge fan for de- you know a decade plus, a couple of decades or at that point or almost a couple of decades I guess, I guess it was probably probably under two decades, but whatever. I've already been a big fan. And so that voice was in my my head easily. But and plus there's a certain Jewish comedy rhythm that I that I was sort of born into. You know, it's, it's that just does happen. So I I would find myself talking like Robert almost accidentally in a lot of places. And Robert, you know, would hear that and say, I love that you doom, nobody does me. And you know, he'd say, you know, like that. And there one day Again, I wasn't trying to do an impression, and I don't really do vocal impressions. I mm-hmm. can sort of do people's rhythms. One day we were do we started the first thing I did for for him that Carl and I did was a, a these you know, like New York remote pieces for the Bloopers and Practical Joke Show, which were sort of Dave's version, Robert's version of what Dave did, mm-hmm. except it was very much Robert. It was really Robert's voice; it was very different ultimately. Um, and he would do the narration for them, and we'd be sitting in the in the room while he was recording the narration. And, I, and at one point, um, he came out of the recording booth, and he really didn't like. How, what he'd been doing he turned to me and said i can't stand it i'm starting to sound like little thomas <laughs> little thomas that for those who don't know was uh, a tv and also film guy who did narrations for documentaries and for travelogs he did the first cinerama movie he was yeah. a narrator things like that so he, he said that and they turned to me and said Wonder, how would i say this line and i thought about it for a second i don't remember the line i wish i did but the rhythm was something like <laughs> like that. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I did that, and he said, "Yeah, that sounds like me." And he's walking back to the booth, and I hear him. <laughs> he's going, and I—I I literally, I'm sitting there thinking, Robert Klein do, is doing an impression of me, doing an impression of him. This is literally the best job on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's that's how it works. I mean, it, for me, it was getting the voice in my head, and like I said, when once they're in my head, it was harder to get it out than it was to get it in. Mm-hmm. So let's think about,
2: I'm going to stay with Dave for just a couple more mm-hmm. minutes. So let's think about going into work and knowing that you need to come up with some material. What kind of headspace do you need to get into? And what types of exercises do you do in order to put out the
1: material that you put out? I don't, I can't, I don't think there's any th- terms of headspace. and Everybody is different. I remember I noticed this more, even more on the Disney show that because it was collaborative, more collaborative than on the Letterman show, which is that I, I tend to be, when I'm writing for the television shows, I get in my on my greatest energies in the morning.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It starts to fade over the day.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: On the Disney show, and I, don't, maybe, I think it was true on the Letterman show too for a lot of the other writers, but it wasn't as relevant because in Letterman we were writing at our own pace. But, but on, on a lot of the shows, most of the, the writers are better later in the day. Mm-hmm. and by the end of the day i'm sort of done you know i'm sort of out of it already mm-hmm. so for me it was trickier on the on the disney show to find a place where we could all where we'd get our both both of ourselves in sync in it wasn't a problem because carl, carl worked well in the morning we'd sit down and we say you know we would got the assignment or whatever we had to do that day and then i, I don't think there's a, a any tricks to it i think it's the it's a job like anything else you know you, you have to deliver mm-hmm. so i don't have any particular tricks or anything i just look at the thing think about it talk about it the, the nice thing about working with a partner is that you get throw things back and forth yeah you're writing by yourself you only, you're sort of stuck with yourself you have to talk yourself into being funny
0: mm-hmm.
1: but you you know when you're when you're trying to make your partner laugh or vice versa that helps I think that can help
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: but that's everybody is different and I've written by myself too and I've been able to get you know get away with it right so it's like anything else so I don't I wish there were tricks I could tell you but I don't and I think everybody has a different approach mm. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, and I think it's just a question of realizing, you know, that there are are not a ton of nine to five jobs in, in comedy, but you know, when you work on a show, show that works four or five days a week that, and I worked with, you know, two low, two of those, you don't have the option of, of having to wait, wait around for a trick. You have to go in and do the job. Yeah.
2: So it's just a job and you, you, well, it's you, a, it's have, a, it, you have tasks and you have to figure yeah. out how to do them.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's that, that literally is, you know, that's the job. I mean, that's what they're paying you for. You know, I, I know I, I, I even remember very early we before the actual show went on, we had, there was a, a piece that we were all working on for Dave to do for the remotes to pitch the show. Mm-hmm. And I remer- remember, we were all standing around at one point at one point they were already there. Dave wasn't happy with the joke. And, uh, and uh, we were all standing around trying to figure out something And Jerry Mulligan who had worked on the morning show and had known Dave forever says, "Well, you know, this is the job, guys. You know, you gotta come up with jokes." So we tried. Yeah, I don't know how it worked out, but we tried, and that—that that was it. And after a certain point, I hope, hopefully, you're able to do it. Uh-huh. If you aren't, you probably won't be there long.
2: Yeah, yeah. So let's back up and uh, find out uh, when you decided that comedy writing was going to be your
1: vocation. I always loved comedy since i was very little mm-hmm. i lo- and i loved all comedy i love what was contemporary mm-hmm. uh and i love the older stuff you know I, I always point out to people that when i was a kid kids television in the afternoon in a lot of cities certainly in new york city you'd be watching it, there were you know contemporary hosts of these shows but you'd be watching laurel and hardy mm-hmm. abbott and costello three stooges warner brothers cartoons you know little rascals things like that so i was getting a grounding in comedy from the 30s just because that's what was on the air and i loved all of it you know i love the old stuff the new stuff um, I hadn't, I originally, when I was really little, the first thing I wanted to do was to make cartoons specifically, I wanted to make Warner brother cartoons, mm. particularly specifically I wanted to, I realized I want to make Chuck Jones cartoons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I found out that, uh, Chuck Jones was already making those. So there probably wasn't much market for, for me to do that. <laughs> um, and then I sort I of thought like a lot of kids, kids, I said, I want to be a comedian performer. And then I realized at some point I didn't have any real talent for that. So my father was a writer. He was been a professional writer all his life. He was a playwright and a television writer. He wrote, wrote drama though. He didn't write comedy. But for me, growing out, up at a writer's house, the uh, the, the notion of the of a writer writing being a job that one did was something that I could attach to. Mm. And it, it pretty it came pretty obvious to me by later in high school that that was what I was going to make a stab at.
2: Yeah.
1: And in fact, I met Carl in high school, and we actually started writing together. I was he was about a year behind me, so we. Had, our first spec scripts were written when I was in college and he was in the, still in high school, we would send drafts back and forth to each other. Uh-huh. So that's really how we started.
2: Yeah. So you, you and Carl did quite a bit together. I mean, every time, every time you appeared on the show, you were together. So you were, you're, you, you were Pretty much. kind of a team mm-hmm. as, as far as that's concerned, when this all culminated in king of the disease and you know just from the clips i've seen i just i fall in love with that and i hope i can find it somehow
1: well i it's i hope it'll be back online it was on for a long time up on on youtube uh-huh. and then it went away so at the moment i'm actually working uh to try to get it back on youtube uh-huh. uh so you should have should have be able to see it i hope at some point the actor that you better. had
2: playing Sherlock Holmes when you're illustrating the fact mm-hmm. that they were filming several different movies on the same sound stage, mm-hmm. when he got so exasperated at the end mm-hmm. and threw his hat, it was just... It, 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 for for me it was a magical moment and uh,
1: those guys are good they were all all the cast we had were all, all you know actors in the na- you know neighborhood actors people who went out for those jobs yeah. we were a- luckily able to get them all back when we did the new clips for letterman i, th- I think everybody who was in pretty much who was in the original which in, which was in 78 uh-huh. uh we were able we came we brought them back in uh, in 82 uh, when we did the new clips for the show so uh th- you'll see them all there again you know in the, in the new clips yeah um but it, but the, you know it, it, we were very lucky, and the actor we had now you didn't, don't see him because they only use the actual clips from the the black and white clips. But in the actual film, we have the interviews with the with uh, the the owner and the the manager of the studio, and he was very good. And we have a lot of other good people in those clips too. Uh-huh. Uh, there's, I'm even in it for half a second, and I'm terrible. But I, but I can't do anything <laughs> about that because I I had to leave a mo- little bit of my thing in because I like the joke that led into me. Uh-huh. But uh, I cut out most of my performance because as I said and now realized again i was not a professional entertainer. i was a writer
2: (laughs) i had a uh while you were talking i had a squirrel pop in my head and i had to write it down so i didn't forget it do you consume any of the uh current comedy uh that's going on any of the shows any of the
1: stand but i don't keep i don't say that i keep up Uh so very often when they ask people their entire comedians entire things have just gone by me right and but I'll find some, and you know I don't know if they're necessarily the best, but they're the ones that somehow get on my radar. Right. Um, and I think there's some really good stuff out there. You know, I do watch occasionally. I do watch uh, Colbert, and I do watch the uh, uh, Trevor Noah, and I um, I don't watch a lot of t- other. I don't watch any other talk shows mm-hmm. particularly. I don't. I'm, I watched. I said I watch Colbert. I don't keep up. I don't watch uh, uh, any of the Jimmys. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I watch some com, you know, sitcoms. I watch some other kind of comedy shows but it's it's you know again you could ask for somebody i mean i miss entire people I'm, i managed to miss the entire career of bill hicks when he was on yeah when he when he died it was like oh this was the greatest comedian i said it was bill hicks i mean i just it just literally had gone right by me. yeah just because i don't i never kept up with you know when, when i left the letterman show this is true of anything i think a lot of people who when when you work on the show and you leave the show whatever whether it's a good reason or a bad reason it's hard to look at it again because they're either of two things that are going to go through your head. Either it's going to be very good and you'll be sorry you're not there, mm-hmm. or it's going to be not good and you'll be sorry you're not there for different reasons. Yeah. So there's nothing gained by watching the show. So I didn't watch the Letterman show after I left that. I didn't watch the Mouse Club after I left that. So a lot of the comedians who broke on the Letterman show during those days were people I just didn't see.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah. And it, it's funny, your sensibility as far as that's concerned is so much like mine. We're, we're outliers and yeah. we... We like what we like, and right. we're not going to be sucked into trends, and uh, no. we're, we're just going to do what we do. And, you know, I I don't get into anything that stand-ups get into. They all like to play Dungeons and & Dragons, and they love comic books and Marvel
1: movies. We didn't have Dungeons & Dragons in my day, young man. Yeah. <laughs> I was a... <laughs> what If we had a Dungeon & dragon? we had to build a dungeon and, and try to make somebody dress like a dragon. You couldn't just <laughs> do this stuff. <laughs> so yes In, in getting no, back to and getting
2: back to the question uh the things that you see that you like do you see anything that you would say is new or do you think that comedy is pretty much what it was in the 20s think, and has just been
1: revamped and modernized well every everything comes in waves but i see a lot of stuff that i think th- I think a lot of what I'm finding that really is impressing me now are people who, who can sort of blend comedy with very personal and very emotional kind of material so that you can take something. I mean, I I, I loved, um, Oh my God, I'm going to go up on the name. Uh, um, that I will come back to this. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the wonderful Brit- British woman, uh, help me, help me, help me, you know, um, it's going to, it's going out of my head. Um, it's not Julia Child, is it? No, 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 no. The, 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 um, well, I'll come back to it. Okay. But, but there there are people uh, who are doing shows now. I'm actually, well, if I, if I knew her, I can't, I don't, can't remember her name right now. Um, but, but there are shows, British, there are shows, comedy shows that I see now that are, you would almost not, think, you almost don't quite know how to classify them. They're not quite comedy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, um, Fleabag, thank you. For, uh, Fleabag oh, is a yeah, show I was very, trying to think yeah. of. Yeah. You yeah. Know, a show like Fleabag, she's, Amazing, and you know, you. I've seen people say, "Well, this is not there." I've I've seen people write online who are comedy writers saying, "I don't consider this a comedy." Well, actually, it's really funny, but it's very bleak. Mm -hmm. And but it's it's real and it's human, and that's something that I think there were versions, things like that in the past. But but I think they're better now. I Mm -hmm. think there there's more range, more ability to sort of draw outside the lines, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're doing a a show for you. If you're doing a show for, um, for network television, you could not have done what she did in Fleabag. Um, and you know, even now, now you see people are imitating that show and some of them are good and some are not so good. Anytime you do something that's that groundbreaking, Mm -hmm. you're going to get a lot of versions of, it. but you know, I see stuff. Now there are things I've seen people say, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, I'm going to have a lot of trouble with namesake. This is dealing with old people. Uh, we live in the shadows. Is that the name of the show? Um, oh, what we do in the shadows. What we do in the shadows. Yeah. Thank you. That's a very funny show. Uh-huh. But I got I got into a, a dispute with somebody when when I said to them, "It's really not that different from the monsters in the Adams Family, uh-huh. because the, the basic crust of the the basic baseline of that uh-huh. is the same. The jokes are different, and there were jokes they couldn't have done on either of those shows, uh-huh. but." I don't see the framework, the basic setup as being that different. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just things come around again, come yeah. in cycles. And you could do uh, that, you know, what we do in the shadows. Uh, I got the sound wrong again, I'm sure. But we, you could do that show, you know, that, in a different way now. But the basic, the fundamentals are not that different. Now, I don't, That that's not meant to be a criticism in any way. That's right. not to say it's not a really good show. Yeah. But, you know, I, I I love old British sitcoms, for example. And I, and I went back and I've been watching Steptoe and Son, oh, okay. which was the original show that Sanford and Son is based on. If you see Steptoe and Son, it's so different from what Sanford and Son became. Steptoe and Son was about two guys who really were at the end of their, were sort of stuck with each other. Uh-huh. It was kind of tragic. And it's very dark. And uh, you couldn't have done, they couldn't have done that in, in, when, when, when. Sanford and Son was done here to that degree mm-hmm. but I look at Steptoe and Son and I see more of a link between Step, Steptoe and Son and Fleabag than I do between Steptoe and Son and Sanford and Son. Steptoe and Son is forty or, is almost 60 years old now mm-hmm. when it started starting 65 uh, and continued into the 70s um, so things come around again they're different versions and a lot of it has to do with what the market will take uh, Steptoe and Son was an outlier in British TV in their time they had a lot of goofy weird w- wacky shows like typical network shows in america mm-hmm. but they got that on the air and they managed to make it work i don't think that could have happened in the 60s in america mm-hmm. uh but now it can yeah you know um you can look at at uh, the the uh, shows that that use the i mean everybody uses the documentary form now whether it's Mo- modern family or abbott elementary or all those now it's you know the office whatever mm-hmm. they all become sort of the formats become sort of hardened like rock, but on the other hand, I think Abbott Elementary uses it. Even though the rhythms are the same mm-hmm. as the office of the other shows, what they're doing with it and how they're the, the kind of material they're dealing seems very fresh to me. So that show, which in one way is very typically stereotypically structured to a standard, you know, documentary format, with you know, and somebody said, "Oh, I they always look at the camera with that little look like they're doing the office." Yeah, they do that, mm-hmm. but the but the baseline of the material is very different. They're mm-hmm. talking about different environments, and I've never seen it the school format presented in white that way. Right. So you can take a little format and do fresh things with it too.
2: Yeah. Are, are you able to enjoy watching television uh, knowing that you're a writer and mm-hmm. you've 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 written for TV? Are you able to remove yourself from the part where you're dissecting every line and the tropes and all that kind of stuff?
1: Um, you know, I always remember my father saying to me, he had a hard time watching movies because he worked in studios and he saw how they were made. And every time he went to theater and saw a movie, you'd imagine imaginary clap report before each cut. Yeah. Right. So it's a different take each time in his head. The closer it is to material that I used to write, the harder it is for me to watch. Yeah. So, you know, when I watch Stephen Colbert's show, I'm, I, my favorite part to watch are the interviews rather than the, the monologues and things like that. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying he doesn't do the monologues really well, but, but, you know, I hear those, you know, the gears shifting of how Mm -hmm. a joke like that is written. Um, But, you know, I I haven't written, I I studied other formats, but I haven't written them. So I don't have as much of a feeling about that, but it's true. I do feel like I can only watch the stuff that I think is really, really good. Yeah. And if it's a little less than good, I tend to burn out on it very quickly. Yeah. Uh, If I, if I see something and there's a certain amount of repetition and the repetition kind of gets to me. Yeah, I do. But you know, there's a lot of ways looking at it. People could say, "Well, you're just jealous because they're, you know, whatever." Like you're, you're not working right now. Well, maybe that there may be part of that true. That's true too. I, you know, I, I, I have to be brutally honest about that. But I would like to think that you know I'm pretty good at stuff, and that if I see something that I don't think is funny, it's not because I'm jealous. It's because I don't think it's funny.
2: Right. Right. And I'd and, like to, think. and it really makes you appreciate the good stuff.
1: And uh, I really do. And I, I, I know some people in this business who I've met, who find it very hard to appreciate any comedy other than their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I find that a really sad. That makes me really sad Yeah, because it's sort of the question is, why did you get in the business in the first place? Most people get into comedy because they loved something mm-hmm. in comedy and you never know what it's going to be. You know, I mean, uh, um, I had, you know, Carl and I both had a very wide net in terms of the comedy we love. But I met, I met people, you know, people, some of the, the guys on the Letterman show. George Meyer was about as funny a, a human being as I've ever met in the world. George, you know, if asked, well, what was the thing that really he really loved? He said, get smart. Mm. And yeah. then I tried to get others out of him, and it was very hard to find others that he loved as much. Yeah. But, you know, get, if get smart did the trick and got him to this point to be what he was, I think most people who, who do comedy are, are basically funny. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that if they... Uh, the paths they take into the business are not always the same. Mm-hmm. The fact that I was, I was a, a lover of comedy and still am, and I still, you know, I write for, I write for Criterion. I have this on my T-shirt mm-hmm. the Criterion Collection. I've been writing for the last 10 years. I've been writing film, essays about film comedy, classical comedy for about 10 years because I always, this is stuff I'm writing about, stuff I always love anyway. Yeah. So I can sort of step away from the, the writer, comedy writer gate and examine it like a, from the outside. Uh-huh. And, you know, the way I was when I first saw, you know, Harold Lloyd or, or Buster Keaton or all these people when I just loved them. Mm-hmm. And now I could sort of look back and try to figure out why, you know, and try to examine it and try to write about it. And I'd like to think I'd bring a little bit of, you know, I, when I, when they first asked me to write for them, which i mean the first thing I wrote for criteria I mean, I'm jumping all around. I apologize. No, that's great. But the first thing I, that I wrote for them was actually a memoir about my father's relationship with the Friendship with the, the author of Anatomy of Anatomy of a Murder, mm-hmm. and they, they asked me something, and that was very much a memoir piece. They asked me to write more, and then I looked uh, and I said, "Well, I, you know, they have so many good writers at Criterion you can write about all kinds of things. The one thing maybe I have an edge on is to be able to write about comedy because not only do I love it, I also have done it. Mm-hmm. So maybe I could bring something fresh to the table. So that's why I, I've sort of kept in that lane for them, and uh, and I, I love doing that. But you know, again, you'll meet a lot of comedy writers who don't know anything about other comedy." We're just funny and whatever, whatever takes you to the job is what takes it, what takes you there.
2: Right. Right. Can you talk a little bit about uh, working with Dick Van Dyke on the uh, Nick at Night show?
1: Well, that was literally, you know, if you're, when you're a little, I mean, I that was so little when I first, that when that show was first on the air, I still remember the Dick Van Dyke show. My father had heard about the show and uh, he said, he figured he ought to try to watch it. And he, he thought, well, this sounds like something Steve would like. And he said to me, you want to come and watch this with me? And I watched, I, it was a second season episode. If you're an expert, you'll know it's the one about the flashback episode where, where Rob is trying to get married to, to, to Laura, but things keep going wrong. And it's a fantastic episode. I couldn't start with a better episode. Um, and it also plays a little bit like a, like a Laurel and Hardy comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't take long for me to find out that that Dick Van Dyke also loved Laurel and Hardy yeah. and, and actually knew news and all of that. So my attraction to Dick Van Dyke was a logical path for me because i loved the kind of things that he loved Mm. but i I was very young when i I became a huge fan of the show and i remember thinking as a kid i want to work with him someday in some form and i you know eventually became i hope i could write for him someday Mm. uh but you know when you get to a certain point you get to a certain age and no matter what's happened to you you sort of let that your childhood dreams kind of float away Mm. and by the time by the mid 80s whatever and uh I, i worked for Letterman. I did the, I guess it was, no, I guess it would have been the nineties at this point in the nineties. I, uh, had written for both, uh, the other things I'd written for. And at that point, Dick Van Dyke was doing the mystery show that he did the, 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 um, medical comedy yeah. thing, mystery. And, uh, and I knew I was gonna be writing for that. You know, so I said, well, you know, some dreams don't come true. Uh, the, my partner at the time, that at that particular time was Hillary Rollins, who I had met and worked with on the Mouse, Mickey Mouse Club, mm-hmm. and uh, she had written for, worked with Nick at Night people. She have, before she came to Disney, and they knew her there. And at that time, Dick was was working as the so called chairman of M, of Nick at Night, mm-hmm. which was basically was him doing introducing shows and doing sp- spots for the network. And they were they wanted to do an evening of the, called Chairman's Choice, which was going to be dick's own person five favorite episodes mm-hmm. of the dick van dyke show and they wanted somebody to write those introductions that would who had a feeling for that show and for that and they asked hillary to do it and lucky me that hillary was working me at the time and in fact it originally started as a series. Of, it was going to be commercial spots and i remember hillary called me and saying, well nick and i just asked me to do some commercials for them would you like to work on them with me She'd, very smart Hillary. She paced this very well, and she said, "Yeah." And I said, "Well, you know, I don't know. We've done all these shows at this point. Do we really want to be doing commercials at this point?" I, and it's just, she said, "They they they got to feature Dick Van Dyke." And I said, "What time do you want me?" <laughs> so that became it. Actually, turned into an actual show rather than a series of commercials. Uh-huh. Uh, and it was amazing. Yeah, you know, he, he is the, he is exactly the person you would imagine him to be mm-hmm. and would want him to be. He was yeah. incredibly nice very open, very easy to talk to, very easy to work with. You know, he could have easily, and I actually said to him, if you want me to go away, just say it, I will go because uh-huh. basically I was following around like a puppy dog. Yeah, Because, you know, when you get your childhood, the chance to to fulfill your childhood dreams, you basically become 10 years old again yeah. or 8 years old or whatever. Um, so I did get that experience and it was wonderful. Yeah, You know, it was uh, just a, a great experience. I, I can't say I learned anything from the experience other than uh, sometimes your dreams come true and, it, and it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, writing for Dick was just going to be like writing. We, what we always dreamed we would be able to write for Dick. And you know, the thing we want to do with that is because most of the things they had done with him before had been pretty straight. I said, well, you know, you've got a great comedian there. Let's try to write something funny for him. Yeah. So he tried to write something funny for him. How well we succeeded is up for grabs, but uh-huh. that's what we were trying.
2: Did his favorite episodes match up to yours?
1: Yes. And some of them, yes. Some of them, no. Uh-huh. It's interesting. A lot Most people, in most people's list of favorite episodes, they usually talk coast to coast, Big Mouth, which is the one where Laura s- s- says that that uh, Alan Brady is bald and and that creates huge problems, and then it, she has to go in front of of Alan Brady, Paul Reiner, uh-huh. and 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 he has that great scene with her, and he didn't pick that episode. And I thought, well, I, I'm sort of thinking about this, and this is just a guess. I don't want to speak for for, for Dick Van Dyke. God knows. I thought, well, you know, it's really it's really Mary's episode, Mary Tyler Moore's episode. It's yeah. really her episode. And and I think in Dick's mind, I think he, for his first instinct is to go for the ones in which he felt he was really able to do what he did best. Right. Um, this is a natural, I don't think there's anything, it's not an ego thing. I think it's just a natural thing. Yeah. So, But some of the others were, yeah. I mean, I would have probably put the one that I, that first one that I saw is still one of my favorites, but uh, and I don't I don't think it was on that list. I can't even remember the list anymore. It's been so long. I don't think it was one of those. Yeah. But uh, everybody has different lists. The great thing about the Dick Van Dyke Show is there are so many, so many great shows. Oh yeah. That you know you take if you reached in and took took five and just threw them up there. You're likely to get five great episodes.
2: Yeah. It was so ahead of its time, and I don't know. I I don't know how it was able to catch on. It was so far ahead. One of the one of my pet peeves about television is. In the dialogue, it always just feels like people are taking turns talking, and mm-hmm. that was never the case on the Dick Van Dyke Show because you know um, they would talk over each other. There were it, it was it was real acting and it was real dialogue, and for some reason, even as a kid, that stuck with me. And mm-hmm. now when I watch shows that are um, just more you can just tell folks are just saying their lines and well, there's, there's no emotion behind it. It really, it really bugs me. And I, I tune out like right away.
1: Yeah. I don't, I don't like comedy shows where I actually hear the punch lines, you know, this where, where I can feel the machinery grinding. Oh you know yeah. I mean? Yeah. Uh, but, but, and the thing, one of the, I mean, I'll spend the whole hour talking about the Dick Van Dyke show too, and probably shouldn't, but <laughs> I, I, you know, Carl Reiner always said the difference between ours, one of the ways you can mark the difference between our shows and other shows is that, People would come in Monday mornings on, on and they would have their you know, their board room you know, their meeting room. And they would say, What and the producers say What have you got for me this week? Okay. And Carl Ryder said, We would come in on Monday, and I would say to the, the writers, what happened to you this weekend? Ah. Uh. So a lot of the episodes of that show came from real things, <laughs> even the ones that seem outrageous. You know, that that you know. That Richie's being chased around the the, the garden by a, a uh, by a woodpecker. Uh-huh. That happened apparently to Rob Ryder. You know, it was was being chased when he was a kid by by a woodpecker. And Carl Ryder saw that and said, "Oh, we got an episode here." Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, so that that was that was the way they worked.
2: What a genius making Richie a little prick. You know, that's
1: <laughs> yeah, not fair to Richie. <laughs> I worked with Larry. He was on our show. He's a very nice, he was on that show. He was a very nice man. He wasn't a little prick. He was just a real little kid. Yeah. He didn't talk in, in punchlines. He didn't talk in That's gags. That's right. Yeah. He talked, many well, kids talk. It now, was natural. To be, fair, to be fair, Leave it to Beaver kids did not talk in punchlines either. So he wasn't the first one either yeah, to do that. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, uh, <laughs> he, but no, Richard did not talk. It was not a little prick. That's not a nice Yeah. It was, I mean.
2: you know, it was one of the first first shows that showed a child as a child versus a child. the the right. wind-up doll that's uh, mm-hmm. acting like a child absolutely yeah let's talk let's talk about robert klein because mm-hmm. uh so he he pretty much stole you from
1: letterman right no we would already been off. we've been away for from the show for for some time okay what happened was we we had been we uh, we left the show and uh, we're looking around, and uh, you know it's tough. But we do not go to California. We didn't. Neither of us really want to live in California. There wasn't, and yeah. yeah, so not that much in New York. But uh, Robert was going to do these remote pieces for the Bloopers and Practical Joe show, and he called Barry Sand, who he had known for ages, mm-hmm. and he asked Barry. He said, "Look, I'm looking for some writers who might be right for me to work on this project." And Barry said, "I got the guys for you," and he gave them our names. And uh, again, personality difference. You know, with the Dave you talk to occasionally in the hallway, but in the case of Robert Klein, Robert picked, you know, I, I literally picked the phone one day and and I had Robert Klein on the other end.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And uh, he said, we, I'd like you to come to work for me. And we said, I said, haba haba hamana, hamana And I said, sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, You know, fine. Love to, you know, and I told him what a fan I was. And, you know, we came to his, because we were doing that. This show was very out of the back of a van, the show what we were doing because there was no studio. It was, you know, we were doing remote pieces. We did them out of, we would meet in Robert's, he had an apartment on on uh, Fifth Avenue in those days. We would meet at Robert's house to put the thing together, talk about it, and then we would go out with the remote crew and shoot it. Uh, we never saw the inside of a studio at that time. We were doing that. We did later when we did the talk show. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, that's how he did it. There was just Robert and Carl and me. And uh, each each week or whatever, we'd get together, try to come up with an idea, and we w- we really would work on them together. We would put together loose scripts, so we would put the scripts together. But but Robert was very much a part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, you know, we would do the typing later and he but but he was always very much involved, so mm. it was very much his voice. And uh and then we did that and then later on when he had the talk show, he called us back to work from on that.
2: The talk show pleasure. one of one of the things I you know I watched uh a, a few of the interviews that are up on YouTube. I watched uh Jerry Seinfeld and I watched uh Gil. Um the Seinfeld interview really stuck with me because uh it's the only time I've ever seen Jerry, um, I guess, showing reverence uh, for someone else um, and actually being like that little kid that's meeting his hero. Um, And I'm Mm -hmm. sure they talked a little bit, but, you know, it – You see Jerry on any other show, um, and he doesn't do that many talk shows, but you see him on any other show, and even his show, he is um, always, it always seems like he is either higher in stature or equal to who he's talking to, whereas with uh, Robert, it seemed like he was actually a little starstruck sitting there with him.
1: Well, that one I can almost give you a little background on, because I, I didn't know Jerry well, but I knew him a little bit because my my Carl was trying to also be a stand-up comedian around the time that that uh, we were working together. Uh-huh. and uh, and he and Carl would work at at uh, at the comic strip, which is two blocks from where I live, still live. Um, and uh, so I would go down to see Carl there, and I, then Jerry was sort of the big guy there at that time. He was really breaking then at that mm-hmm. time. but he also would you know Jerry would also occasionally do open the mic open you know the mic nights the first night when Carl would be working out stuff. So I, I you know I met Jerry to say hello to. Uh, and I, and when Robert first called us, called us, actually, I, I don't remember why Carl wasn't there. I guess he couldn't make it, but Robert said, I'm going, I'm doing Caroline's, I'm with Caroline's I, I come and visit, you know, I'll, I'll have a table for you. Come and we'll talk after the show. So I went down there and and Jerry was at the table with us. he mm-hmm. had, had been put at the table with us. So I got to talk a little bit and, you know, we talked about Robert and Jerry said point blank that, you know, Robert was his. One, one of certainly one of his top comedy heroes, maybe his very top comedy hero, mm-hmm. and you can see it in his work and, and in a good way. It's never stole yep. anything, mm-hmm. I mean, but the influence of that observational style that Robert, you know, pioneered to a large degree, you certainly see that in Jerry's work. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, I think Jerry was the next step. I think it was just Robert and Jerry. But what, what makes me sad now is there are a lot of young comedians who I think don't know Robert's work, and some of them do observational comedy, and they may think at the back of their minds, well, maybe I'm sort of Maybe a little bit like Jerry Seinfeld, but they don't even know the line that got to Jerry that got to them. Yeah. You know what I mean? That yeah. makes me sad. You know, I really wish more people knew Robert's stuff. And, there, you know, it's out there. You can yeah. still find it. There's, you get a box set of his HBO specials. You can get his records. You can, get, you know, you can go on you. There's a little bit on YouTube. He's pretty good about keeping his stuff, the copyrighted stuff off of YouTube. But there's a little bit there. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, that makes me sad. But I, I hope people can reacquaint themselves with Robert. Yeah.
2: I wanna I wanna make you a little bit happy because I I've talked to I somewhere around 140 stand-up comedians during the run of this, and a lot of them do the homework, <laughs> uh, espe especially the ones who do well. Um, and you know I talked I talked to this 20, I think it was like 22 when I talked to him. This kid from. Um, chicago and he knew everything about robert klein he knew mom's mabley he you know he knew he he knew everything back and he was a a voracious watcher of them and understanding the craft and understanding what worked then that could possibly work now so a lot of them Mm -hmm. actually do now a lot of them a lot of them you see on stage maybe not um, but a lot, a lot of them that I look up, um, I see some meat on the bone there and, mm-hmm. um, I don't have just anybody on the show. <laughs> I, 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 have the ones Until that today. I, yeah, I have, I have the ones that I think are, um, actually a true student of the craft. And, uh, I, I tell you a lot of them actually will list Robert Klein as one of their major That's right. influences That's and, really they're, good to know. and they're 25 years old and That's you know, right. yeah. Yeah so there's
1: always those people out there i mean, you know as an old comedy buff i remember well now it's, he's not that young anymore but when but in the early days of the internet somebody started a charlie chase fan page The great Hal roach comedian charlie uh-huh. chase it was like an 18 year old kid yeah and that made me really happy you know it was yeah. like a, that uh, to, you know, a lot a lot of us are made very happy by that so yeah the people do find them in the same way that you know when i was a kid we used to trade radio shows on real to reel tape with each other you mm-hmm. know we listened to jack benny and fred allen Edgar Bergen and, then, you know, whatever. And that was already, you know, 20 years before, for our time. So yeah, there are always some, and that's, that's good. And they, they will always find that. Those yeah, these yeah.
2: And uh, yeah, I think there's, there's, there's more than you think. And yeah, it's, uh, it, it makes me feel good because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, those are the ones that I grew up with too. And, and, you know, they, they form my sensibilities. Right. Now, when you were working with Robert on the, talk show what i mean what was your duty there were were you working on monologue but were you also
1: that's a a really really good question Uh because the the because we when we first came to work on that show uh our original producer the late joe cates uh was death death against doing comedy sketches in the show and things Uh like that with comedy bits so i'm not sure why we were there (laughs) <laughs> to a certain extent, we were there. You know, if we could come up with something that we that would help the show, or if we could give Robert something, we certainly didn't work. You know, by and large, we didn't work on the monologues. We might give him a joke here and there to, you uh-huh. know, uh, we might give him an you know, ad lib as one does occasionally to to do on well, one of the guests or something. But uh, you know, I think we were almost like more like comedy advisors on the show. I mean, we would we would sit in the edit room with him, you know, and go over they when he was editing the show and see and and. But I think he liked having us there because we knew what we were doing. We kept fighting to get more comedy bits on the show. Ironically, when Joe left the show that another producer came on, uh, the problem was they could no longer afford to have union writers on the show anymore. So they hired some two young writers who at that point had not gotten their, their first union gig. so they were able to work there and then they had sketches on the show. So it was like it was very frustrating because so, well, oh, we didn't get a chance to do our sketches. Uh, but it was it was it was still fun because and I, we did have an impact on the show yeah. and every now, every now and then we could we could I would suggest guests or Carl would suggest guests I, for example, I saw that, uh, that they were going to do an anniversary of the play Dead End they were doing at Lincoln Center. And the play Dead End became the movie Dead End, eventually became the Dead End Kids, which became the Bowery Boys, and I knew that that was something Robert connected. Mm. So I said, we've got to get – Hunts Hall and Gabe Dell are coming to town. And awesome. I said, we... Wow. I said, let's get them on the show. And I knew that Robert was going to fall in love with us. So we... I came in the next day, and Robert said immediately, fantastic. He said, I'll get my head. I'll go out and do like – like hunts hall i'll do the thing and i'll be in it and joe joe was like dead set against it and we had to literally robert had to say no i want these guys on the show uh-huh He's, okay joe said well who's gonna know who they are nobody says i know who they are robert said you know it made him happy i think a part of the show of doing a show with the host is they should be happy with what they're doing oh, yeah. so robert did we did get them on the show we only got one segment, but it came came off really well i remember also carl and i had the idea to do a, a segment about mad magazine mm-hmm. And we got, you know, Dick Bartolo and uh, and uh, a couple of other guys from the show, on, from the magazine on the show. You know, anything like that, Robert, was in heaven. And I think it benefited the show. So that's a, I guess that's a form of writing in this yes. case, because we were creating a segment. Uh, but it was an odd experience, that show, for a lot of reasons. And it's a long, long story that I'm not going to tell you here, but it, it, it was, it was tricky. Yeah. It yes. was tricky. But well, it was great with the, yeah, it was never a problem with Robert. We had some problems with Joe, but never had a problem with
2: yeah, Robert. Yeah. Yeah. Working working for a network, I can see that. Um, getting into the Mickey Mouse Club. So mm-hmm. let, let's talk about that because you, you spent four years on that, right? Well,
1: uh, four seasons, three years. Four, se- yeah, four okay. seasons. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Talk, talk about that and how it differed from your uh, writing experience up until then and what well, you
1: gained from it. I think I've I, I told I now told the story of how how we got the job on four different podcasts. So I'll skip that now. <laughs> Anybody wants to hear that story, go to the to, to the to Mike Chisholm's podcast. Yeah. But once we got to the show, um, you know, it was tricky. We I mean we we actually t- asked our agent if we could get it get ourselves an out after thirteen weeks so we could leave if we wanted to, and she said no, they won't take So, Okay, well we'll go for the first season. Maybe we could always make ourselves so unpleasant that they'd want to get rid of us. It was un- unpleasant, <laughs> but it turned out to be a really wonderful experience uh it didn't turn out to be that disney thing the disney people were the executives they were on the outside but all of us on the inside and a lot of this i think had to do with alan Silverberg, who was the head writer who chose writers very well and it was mm-hmm. a, he had a good eye and he also knew what he wanted mm-hmm. and we were more in tune with what he wanted which was a good which meant that all of us on that show were in the same vein of what we want to do and there were two things that alan said to me later on he said that uh you know i said to alan at one point you know it's so great that we all really like each other on this show because that's not always the way on a show like this. You know, there were two things I wanted when I was hiring a staff. I wanted, A, really good writers and B, people to get along with each other. Now that's a novelty. Mm-hmm. Not every head writer is going to do that. Um, and I, it paid off in this case. And we all of us, for example, this was not the way it was in Letterman, but, you know, it, it worked for Letterman, but on, on the Mouse Club, we all worked with each other. We worked in different combinations. Every writer on the floor at one point or another worked, you know, with it not only with who they originally worked with, they worked on their own, they worked with the other, other writers in turn, or three writers might write a sketch together. It could be anything. Mm-hmm. And I found as a writer, for me, it was really interesting because I would find that when I was writing with a different writer, my writing changed, would change a bit. Mm-hmm. You know, we would find like a midway ground between our two styles and be, it, we'd create a third thing that was not the same as the two things on their own mm-hmm. or the same thing as what Carl and I did. And uh, I think that benefited the show. It certainly benefited me as a writer. It made me feel more confident you know, eventually I would go on to write a bit on my own and also to write with Hillary and write in other combinations. I had only worked with Carl up to that point and to find that I could do this and feel comfortable. Uh, that was good for me. I learned a lot from that. Mm-hmm. I learned about what might that I had more, uh, might have more chance to do other kinds of things than I had done before. And that was very useful for me mentally, you mm-hmm. know, to keep in that field. Um, if your next question is writing for kids, which is usually what the next question is in these situations, uh, the answer to that was, well, I mean, it is sort of is, isn't it right? Cause I mean, if you, if you write adult stuff, they say, what's it like to work for kids? <laughs> I never, I never wanted to write for kids. That's why I didn't want this job. I had no interest in it. I still don't have any interest in it. I, you know, they asked me in the, in the, in the, one of the meetings, you know, one of the, uh, job interviews that we had, they asked, well, how would you write for kids? And I said, you know, if so you, you only wrote for us. How would you write for kids. I said, I will. I said, we wouldn't, we'd write for adults and we cut out the stuff the kids didn't understand. mm mm-hmm. And in point of fact, I don't think we even we tried not to even cut out the stuff the kids wouldn't understand. Mm -hmm. The thing was, if you write comedy and you're not writing to be funny, period, you're not doing your job properly. Yeah. You know, if you're writing down because you're writing for kids, you're not doing your job. You know, go back and look at the Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoons. It's full of jokes for that. You know, kids and adults watch that together because there were jokes that kids wouldn't get. And there were jokes the adults got. And the jokes that the kids got were funny for the adults, too, because it's just funny. Funny is funny. Yeah. And we tried to do that on the show. We tried to write. You know, my my mentality was if you're writing for a sketch comedy show, which is what this was, this was a sketch show. The Letterman show was was not a sketch show.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, Neither was the Robert Clyde show. But this was a sketch show. This has more to do with like the Nash show they did with the Letterman show Mm -hmm. because there were sketches. And so, if you're writing for if you're writing a sketch show and your cast members are children, what do you write? So for us, it was like, you know, it's simple, you write about you dig into your memories, you write about your childhood, you write about, you know, school life. What was you know, what do you what was funny when you were a kid? You write for home, you you know, try, you know, work being with your parents, you write what, what that comes from. And you still do the parodies. We did movie parodies on our show. We did everything that we would have done on, you know, if it was for the Cabernet Show.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, or, or, or any of the other variety of shows that existed. We didn't really try. We didn't never try. Tried to write down. We just tried to write as funny as we could. Luckily, our kids were so talented and so funny that we could write anything, and they they could grab and they could run with it.
2: You, um, one, I think one of the things we do as adults is we uh, we sell kids short. Uh, they're they're a lot smarter than you think they
1: are. Yeah. Well, I, that was our problem. That's what we learned so fast. Carl and I both said, you know, I I know they're going to be adults. I host on the show, but how do you write for kids and assume that they're going to be able to get the jokes across? How are they going to process this and then give it back to you? They were so damn good. Yeah. I mean, you know, some of them were were great out of the gate. Some of them learned on, on the job, but by the second season, they all could do it. They all could, you, there's nothing you could write that they couldn't pitch, you know, and they could do it just as well as any adult comedy star. And you, you you learned from them at a certain point, you learned that there was nothing you could toss them that they couldn't handle. Uh They were just as good actors as any other comedy actor. It was just a, just, you're just running for prose. That's all. Mm-hmm. First rate comedy minds. Yeah. It's all the same.
2: When you um, think about everything you've written and everything that got shot down, uh, <laughs> is there any bits or any jokes, any sketches that you think would have been just fantastic, but they got shot down and they never saw the light of day that you go to bed thinking, God damn it! I wish that thing would have gone on not, there.
1: Not so much on Letterman. The, the The Mouse Club turned weird in the fourth season because the show changed a lot, and and the, suddenly the, the the show had become a big hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and when a when a show becomes a big hit, the executives get terrified that you're going to do something to ruin it, even yeah. though you're the ones who made it a hit in right, the first place. Yeah. That don't mean me. I mean all of us, right? <laughs> all of us in what we were doing, and who more or less, they didn't leave us alone, but they gave us a certain amount of rope in the first couple of seasons, mm-hmm. because that way, if the show flopped, then they'd be able to blame us. So they gave us enough rope. But by the fourth season, they were they were going they were doing everything to drive us crazy, and they, it became impossible. And the entire all the writers but one, the, all the production people, the only people who left at the end of the fourth season, they got a whole new bunch of people to write and produce the show after that. Mm-hmm. We just, we didn't want to be there anymore. And there were some sketches. We, they killed a lot of great sketches. We wrote a sketch. Um, we had, they loved. They actually did like us to parody the Disney characters. Mm-hmm. They really did. And we had, we had established some of them in the past, some of the you know some of the dwarves and things like that. And I remember watching the Regis and Kathy Lee show and saying, well, Regis is basically grumpy of, of Snow White, right? It's the same thing. He would come on and just complain about stuff. So I thought we should do like live with, with Rumpy and Kathy Lee. So we wrote a sketch. That was the premise was grumpy and, and Kathy Lee It was me. I wrote it with, uh, with, I think with Hillary and, and, uh, and a writer named Glenn Rabney. And, and it was really funny. Uh-huh. And they, they, I mean, I, I don't say that at all, but this was a good sketch. And they actually originally had told us to go ahead and do it. They had okayed it. So after we wrote it, they said to us, but, but you know, Disney ABC is owned by Disney. And what if Regis Philman doesn't like this and he gets mad? Well, first of all, if you ever watched his show, he loved it when they people made fun of him. Because then he would then he would complain about it. It would oh, become yeah. a joke. So yeah. well, I knew that we all knew that if we did this sketch on the air, not only would he would he love it, but he would complain about it, he may run a clip on the air and it would do us nothing but good. Yeah. But they were so terrified they killed it before we could shoot it. And there were a number of things that I for a season that were like that, but that was the one that really ached me because it was really good. It uh-huh. was a very good sketch. We had uh, one of our Mouseketeers, Mark, Mark Worden was who had played grumpy before, and I just knew he was going to knock it out of the park uh-huh. and we didn't get to and, and also uh, Lindsay Alley, who, who was very good at playing the kind of plastic people that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, I, I won't say, you know, the real person, but you know, the original person was yeah. a little bit on the plastic side <laughs> and it would have been very funny. And it's just, it just that, that one, yeah, that one irks me. Yeah. I mean, there, there were gags that we wrote for Letterman that I can't even remember anymore that, that I, I wish we had able, we had gotten, but that's always the case. Mm. You know? And sometimes not the ones you don't, don't love are the ones that get on the air, and sometimes they're the ones people remember.
2: Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's say I'm um, 22 years old, and I want to be a comedy writer. What books would you recommend that I read? What would you recommend I watch what would what would you recommend in general for somebody it's, who wants to be a comedy writer well
1: so, now it's so different now than it was when we were all when i was starting where other people they always say that mm-hmm. you know i'm sure they when i when i was starting the, the i'm sure the citizen writers it's so different when we were, but it really was because now with between uh youtube and tiktok and you know everything else there are people out there who are constantly trying to be funny mm-hmm. all over the place yeah if you want to be funny get a track tra- you know when we made the film we made our film it was not easy to make a short film and it was not that easy to get it seen so i wouldn't i don't i don't think i would tell people to watch to so much as to read books or stuff but you know expose yourself to everything that's out there and then try to figure out what's funny to you mm-hmm. and then try to do it then, then try to wipe it out all out of your head
0: mm-hmm.
1: you won't you won't wipe it all out of your head it's still in the back of your head but just say to yourself what's what do i think is funny and try to be funny, and I don't know. I don't even know where to go right now, to, to be to catch attention. Because the trick about becoming a co- anything in comedy is you've got to snag somebody's attention. Yeah. And I've always said the problem with with that is that the people who are in the business, when they're trying to hire people, they're not really looking to see. Then they're not looking to see why should I hire this person. They're really trying to look to the first to say why should I not hire this person. Yeah. And it's not because they don't. They're not. They don't want give you a chance. It's because like six hundred people for every gig yeah you know oh, yeah so it's really somebody has to really bounce above
0: mm-hmm.
1: um and, and everybody gets in, in a different path so i never know what to say to people and i always think it's kind of hard i think may i always say make yourself undeniable you know but mm-hmm. that's so hard and i think it's probably harder now than ever yeah because i look i see stuff on 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 youtube or TikTok that, that makes me laugh and i don't know why why these people nece- are not not necessarily on a tv show or they are you know what i mean yeah it's just—it's tough. I can't even post a joke. I, I wouldn't even know if I were writing on a show now how to do it. You'd have to cut yourself off from social media. sometimes I'll try—I'm going to write a joke on Facebook, but before I post a joke on Facebook, I want to see if anybody has done it first or yeah. some version of
2: it. <laughs> I and do the same thing. Nine out
1: of ten times, it's there's been a version of it by somebody. Yeah. Either a professional or a, somebody who's just funny. Yeah. Yeah. So it's tough. It's yeah. tough.
2: The problem, and, I don't and should be more help. Yeah, and I don't want to sound like an old guy railing on uh, new stuff, but a lot of the TikTok, YouTube people, they are a uh, mile wide and an inch deep. So they—that
1: I don't know because you, you pay more attention to than I do. Yeah, but you know, you look at somebody like you know when when Sarah Cooper was her name, I think, who did the the, the Trump pieces with the voice. We do that. Oh yeah, yeah. When she sort of bounced out of the thing and people started knowing her, she was doing it on her own. And I looked at stuff; and this stuff is freaking brilliant. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I know she's doing other things now. I know what the you know the next thing we'll sort of see what what she can move beyond that. Yeah. But you know, somebody could do that now, and that was that's I guess a version of sort of what we did with our movie. But she was able to do it in her house, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, with a camera, yeah. with with a phone, right? And yeah. uh, you know, she didn't have to raise the money, and that's great. But it also means that everybody else is doing it too, right? Right, right. There are a million people who want to be Sarah Cooper. up
2: Yeah, and I think I think a little bit of it is that uh, you you get your shtick, the the thing that makes you popular, the the thing that gets people's attention, and you just hang on it for too long. It's just it's just like TV. I mean, it, it's a kind of a jump the shark type thing, except for you don't grow and your comedy right. doesn't grow with you. I mean, when you look at Robert Klein's first special versus mm-hmm. his last special that's a different comedian yeah. and it's because he learned and he grew
1: well but but I, to be fair because everything is a case-by-case basis very often the people who put make the shows don't want you to do anything new yeah if they've hired you for something yeah that's what they're paying you for and they said but yeah but i want to try to do this and this and this and then you don't get that option yeah so i i don't necessarily think that people are necessarily clinging to their bits i think most people who create comedy really want to Do a broad spectrum. Mm -hmm. They want to do all kinds of things. You know, if in the I don't know if this is still true, but it used to be true that if you got on a variety show first, the way we did, like Letterman show, you couldn't get on a sitcom. Yeah, because they saw you as talk show writers. Yeah, comedy, you know, that kind of show. Right. But if you, if I, if our first break had been on a sitcom, I don't know if they'd have seen us for Letterman. Yeah. Interesting. We weren't trying particularly to get on a variety show. That just happened to be the one we got on.
2: Yeah. It's funny you mentioned Sanford and Son, and uh, Red mm-hmm. Fox was such a multi-dimensional character and one of the most interesting monologu-st, mon- monologu-st, mm-hmm. um, monologist, monologist, um, whatever. One of the best, and you know he was Sanford and Son was great, but he was reduced to quite a two-dimensional character in that show. Um, I mean, very little
1: did, did you get to see any depth there. Well, I didn't see. I haven't seen a lot of interviews with him, so I'm speaking out of what I think might have been going on in his head, and maybe totally wrong. Mm-hmm. But you know, he'd been in the business already for about 30 years, probably at that point. Mm-hmm. And now he was a, TV, a huge TV star. I, I think he was probably okay with it. Yeah, now, yeah. he may want to. You know what I mean? I mean, he may. I mean, he may have wanted to expand, do other things. He may not have gotten a chance to. do. Yeah. But you know what? When you've been beating at the beating away at it, like he had been for and he always had a hard time because he couldn't do his material on television. Yeah, days. yeah, you know, he was doing the the so what they used to call party records, which was the blue material yep. that he did. Mm-hmm. That's putting he made his name on. But they wouldn't have you on TV if that's what you were doing in yeah. those days. So for him to break through at that point in his life, I I bet it was a, a wonderful thing. Yeah, but that's me. Yeah. going yeah. into yeah. his head, which is yeah. not fair.
2: Yeah, it's just it's it's interesting to see to me that these people who were so great. There, there's a show on right now that. uh I I think is doing the same thing to another comedian that is also very good. Um, And it's just, for me, it's just kind of sad. Uh, Mm -hmm. And you you don't get to see the full person. However, I know that they're doing what they need to do to make a
1: buck. And here's the, here's the bottom line. The comedy is a business like everything else. Yeah. And you know, the degree to which you get to do your zone, you know, to do the things you really want to do are subject to so many. Yeah. I mean, I really felt I was very lucky because I felt that Letterman was in my wheelhouse. It was mm-hmm. something that I loved anyway. It's not everything that I was able to do, but it was something I could do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the other stuff that I've done have been other facets of what I've done. And, you know, I didn't get through everything I wanted to do. I would have loved to have had to have a show of my own that I could a show run that I could create on my own do. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what that would have been like, but it would have been different probably. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I can't complain. I've had a wonderful time in the business. I had no, you know, whatever bad experiences I've had, and I've had a few, were never about me or about being my work was, you know, that something else would be in the mix. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I can't complain. I, I, and I like the people I work with. I like David. I like Meryl. I really like Robert Klein. You know, I still think of him as a friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like I like most of the people I've worked with, the people on the Disney show. The kids on that show are all in their mid-40s now, which is terrifying. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I talk to them <laughs> and see a lot of them still all these, you know, after all these years. Yeah. So you know, I've had some incredible experiences. I always said I had the best experiences and the worst experiences of my life on television, yeah. and they were usually on the same show. Yeah, <laughs> which gives you which gives you idea what this business is like. Yeah, yeah. And that is true, but it, it usually was not about the people. It's usually about people. Uh, if they were bad, it was not about the people I started uh-huh. the experience with. You know what I mean? It was something would change mm-hmm. on the experience, and they would something external would change the factor which would made it love. Right. But you know, I can't I cannot complain. The first my first TV gig was on one of the best shows. In television history i think mm-hmm. the letterman show and to have been a part of the creation of that show to have an input on it you know even if it's dumb a thing as you know the pencil through the window thing you know which is which was one of my dumb jokes and became part of the show you know yeah. calvert you know who became a tv star which is beyond would have been beyond comprehension oh, yeah. although sort of the joke for us was that could we make this guy a star and he did yeah you know
2: yeah and you did it very well the <laughs> The lead in for the um, uh, the show that uh, you and Carl did, uh, where you're doing the Vespucci uh, well, films, is the Melman bus lines. And well, that was see, that was Merrill's thing. That that's she, that,
1: I. That was just beautiful. We did, we did, it. we wrote the uh, Merrill, Merrill created the idea. She she created the name Larry Butt Melman. That was Merrill's, uh-huh. and the first Melman bus line ads were hers. But then we started doing. They want to do them with Calvert, and we we wrote all the ones that Calvert is in.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Uh, and she'd written the ones before that. But you know, it's this is this thing coming together because you know what, what they said to us at that job meeting is we're looking for somebody like the guy in your movie for our show, and we just said, well, you want him? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that, that's the guy. Yeah.
2: If I need uh, to, if I wanted to, find your proudest moment
1: and put this in your eulogy. <laughs> What time do you expect that to be delivered? You know, I mean, just in case, I mean, you know, something I don't know. Yeah. I spoke to my doctor. He said I was okay. So yeah.
2: Neither one of us, neither one of us are on the first half of our lives. But what would you say your proudest moment is?
1: I've had several of them. You know, and they usually are that first moment. It wasn't even necessarily being something on the show. It was that moment of getting getting the gig. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've had some incredible experiences like that. And some of them had nothing to do with that. I mean, I mentioned Chuck Jones earlier. I got to know Chuck Jones because I had, I sort of wrote him a fan letter. And he and I had written my senior th- college thesis on him. And he he called me out of the blue one day after. You know, I had written to him and he asked for the thesis. So I sent him to me. He called me one day. Mm-hmm. And said, he was going to be in New York, he would really like to see me. That phone call was was an incredible experience for me. Uh, the, 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 nothing better that, than, than, uh, you know, when I, I, I don't think I told this story before, but when we were, we were, got the, when we first met with David and Merrill, we couldn't get anybody to tell us whether, the, whether they'd made a decision yet. There was a month between the time we did the interview and the time we got the show.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: One week before we reported to work, I got a phone call from an NBC lawyer and he started reading the contract to me over this I opened the phone. Hi, this, this, song, this, and this is your contract with, for, for the late night with David Letterman. And I had to stop him about a paragraph and I said, hold it. I got to stop for one second. Are you telling, you're telling me I got the job, right? So yeah, you got the job. And I said, okay, go ahead. And then he read the rest of the contract. So yeah, that was a big moment. You know, it's that feeling of, of that, you know, by the time we got that job, I was already, what year was that? 1981, yeah, fall 81. So I was like, I just turned 28. So I was not, a, you know, I was already getting up there for TV. Uh-huh. So all the, this door that I had pushed that for so long, you know, literally, I literally went to push it again and it was open and I Uh just fell through. So yeah, that was a big moment. And the Robert Klein thing was incredible because I had been a fan of his since day one. And to have Robert say, I want to work with you guys, it was amazing. So, you know, it's all, it's, it's all been pretty good. You know, I I really have good memories, a lot of great experiences. It's, it's rare in TV, but they're there. Yeah. You know, I really
2: appreciate you doing this. Uh, I've got one last question. Uh Uh-oh. Since you're okay. mentioning uh, British sitcoms, mm-hmm. Faulty Towers.
1: Well, the best. And the genius of one of the genius things about John Cleese is that we're making this many and no more.
2: Yeah. He yeah. said,
1: you know, if we have to do this all the time, it's going to get bad. Mm-hmm. He said, nope, not going to do it. Yep. And he had to clout in those days to make that happen. Yeah. But yeah, that's incredible, Sean. Yeah.
2: I really appreciate you doing this. I, I oh, When I listened fun. to you talk to Mike, there were so there were so many things going through my head and I was, I, I, I took notes for your interview. I was sitting here at my desk when I was listening <laughs> and I took notes and I'm like, I need to know this. I need to know this. I need to know that. And, uh, and, and his, you know, his show is so, um, letterman focused obviously but yeah, i saw awesome i saw it. a lot more to you because right. letterman was a time in your life and i wanted i wanted to yeah. uh explore we talk some about of the some other, other stuff, stuff with mike
1: too when yeah we talk about the other shows with mike too and, and michael is a really good guy and it was a great that was oh great he's fun best he's a be, I, I had
2: him on my show because uh-huh. i i um, discovered his podcast by accident and i fell in love with it immediately and because i'm a i'm an old letterman Fan from the morning show. And mm-hmm, my, my, my my mom used to say, Oh, stop acting like that, David Letterman. So
1: it, <laughs> it's not bad advice, actually. Yeah. Right? I know. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, in your daily life, yes. it's not bad advice. <laughs> you know, I, I can't say, you know, I mean, for Dave, it worked for Dave, yeah. but, you know, he's not the same guy off stage. And for good, there's probably a good reason for that.
2: Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Stephen. It's You're been well. great getting to know you.
1: That was great fun. I enjoyed it.